We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to Creative Responders in Conversation. I'm Skosha Mogovic from the Creative Recovery Network. And this is our monthly interview series where we hear from creative leaders, disaster management experts, artists and community members who are strengthening disaster planning through creativity. Children and young people are not always prioritised in disaster recovery, but in recent years there is a growing body of research and an active movement towards understanding how significantly young members of our community are affected and how important it is to support them through the recovery process. Arts modalities have been shown time and time again to be a highly effective way for young people to voice these challenging experiences. And today, we're exploring a really groundbreaking project in this space that harnessed digital technologies to work with young people in the Yarra Ranges in regional Victoria. Hard Place, Good Place is the name of the project developed by Yarra Ranges Regional Museum following a devastating storm in June 2021. And it was thoughtfully designed in collaboration with the Field Lab at the University of New South Wales as a way to work with young people in the region aged 15 to 25. The work focuses on lived experience of being in a hard place or a good place through a collection of personal and community stories told through augmented reality. It was exhibited in the museum as part of the Big Anxiety Festival, a mental health and arts festival. Today, we're speaking with two of the key people behind the project. Megan Shee is the director of the Yarra Rangers Regional Museum and Volker Kukelmeister, lead immersive designer and senior research fellow at the University of New South Wales Felt, Experience and Empathy Lab. Megan has 20 years' experience in curatorial and senior leadership positions across the arts, heritage, museums, music and health, with a particular focus on cultural programming and arts and wellbeing. Volker is an award-winning artist, researcher and digital media specialist, who is a leading expert in presence, embodiment and place representation for immersive applications. His work in interactive narrative, spatial mapping and immersive experiences is exhibited in museums and galleries and festivals around the world. We talk through the process of developing the project and the importance of approaching this kind of work with care and sensitivity to the experiences of the participants. We also discuss the broader opportunities for the future of digital storytelling, as well as the crucial role that local governments and local cultural institutions play in the disaster recovery in regional areas. Please enjoy my conversation with Megan Shee and Volker Kukelmeister. Thank you both for joining me on Creative Responders. Hard Place, Good Place is a project we've been following with keen interest, so it's really wonderful to have the opportunity to hear from you both about it. Uh, where are you joining us from today, Megan? I'm on uh, the lands of the Yagara Turrbal people here in Meijin, Brisbane. I'm uh, here on Wurundjeri land uh, in Lilydale today within the broader Yarra Ranges. So just 
start by paying respect to ancestors um, and elders past and present of this place. And Volker, I understand you very recently arrived back in Australia and we're very grateful for you to make the time despite your jet lag. Where are you joining us from today? Um, I'm on Gadigal land, um, Eora Nation from Sydney. Well, welcome home. Thank you. Megan, you're the director of the Yarra Rangers Regional Museum, which is in Lilydale in Victoria. Could you start off by telling us a bit about the Yarra Rangers community there and how you particularly came to be part of it? So Yarra Rangers is quite a big uh, geographic area to the east of Melbourne. It starts about an hour east of Melbourne in Lilydale, which is quite a suburban uh, area and spans out to very rural areas that are mostly national park. It covers about two and a half thousand square kilometres, so it's a geographically very large area. And the museum's remit is to cover that entire region. So I started as the director of the museum about coming up two years in September, but have quite a history with the museum when when it was first opened as a regional museum, which was back in 2011. I was involved with the team back then and then became the uh, community heritage officer and then curator at the museum for a while. So I really got to sink my teeth into what's special about this place and the different stories of, of the museum. So having the opportunity to come back as the director has been a really amazing opportunity for me. Mm, what great length of relationship really wonderful. And the, um, the Yarra Rangers, it was the epicentre of a violent storm that swept through Victoria in June 2021, with really significant impacts to the community. Megan, can you give us a bit of a context for this storm? Because, you know, in talking to a lot of the residents, it was so immensely impactful. And yet from someone outside, it wouldn't necessarily have been seen to be of a great weight. So the storm is very isolated. It happened on the 9th of June, 2021, and it was a really unusual weather event that hit about a 20-kilometre radius. But as an impact, 25,000 trees fell, 122 properties were damaged, and 72 of those properties were destroyed. And the people living in that area, it's the kind of area where you've got one road in and one road out. So a lot of people were trapped, unable to get help, they had, didn't have power for multiple weeks and were just waiting for the SES to come and help them. So it was a very isolated but difficult experience for the community that were in and around Kalorama where the eye of the storm was. And people live there because of the relationship to those trees. So when you hear that number and you can understand that great ecological grief that uh, we've been hearing has been so... Powerful. A lot of people speak about the the difference in the landscape and their relationship to it after the storm. When you drive across the ridge, you can see views you've never seen before because of all the trees that have fallen. And one of the things that we kept hearing with this project was that people live in this area because it's beautiful, these big tall trees, but now as soon as they hear the wind pick up, they're terrified of that and the relationship to tall trees, which is something, you know, which are beautiful and strong and a source of so much well-being, have become a source of fear. And we are seeing people move out of the region because of that. 
Mm. So complex, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> At what point did you realise that you wanted to develop a project for or with the museum as part of the recovery and, and that young people would be the focus for that? So the storms came through in June 2021 and I started in the role in September and compared to when I used to work at Yarra Rangers, the community was absolutely a community in recovery. With COVID lockdowns and then the storm on top, there was a real sense of quite desperate need in the community. It wasn't really until it was coming up to the anniversary, first anniversary of the storms, that we thought about what role we could play as a museum in this community that really needed support of all different kinds. And there was a lot of conversations within the broader counselling community about mental health and wellbeing as well. And so with an existing relationship with the Big Anxiety Festival and knowing that that was coming to Melbourne, we saw that as an opportunity to really delve into those needs and to shift uh, what we were doing as a museum towards those needs. And so this is where you come in, Volker. You you were the lead immersive design and research fellow at the University of New South Wales mm-hmm. in their FEEL, acronym FEEL, Felt Experience and Empathy Lab. Your interactive installations and video projects have been exhibited in museums, galleries, festivals all over the world. And I know that you have extensive experience working with trauma-impacted individuals and communities where you've used augmented reality and other creative storytelling techniques. Can you describe a little about some of your previous work and where you've explored AR and as a modality for unpacking these difficult community experiences? Mm. Yeah, we, we focus in our research lab, we focus on sort of community engagement, mental health, well-being, and uh, an important aspect is to work closely with the community. Uh, it's sort of a bottom-up approach. We work in a co-design model, and that sort of allows our collaborators to co be co-authors in projects. It's not that we engage with communities on level that we record the stories, go away, build something and maybe bring them in at the end again. But it's more like an iterative process where we work with people to tell their story, help them to tell their story in an immersive experience. So that's sort of the center of it. An example from 2019, we worked with the Paragirls. Um, those are former residents of the Parameta Girls' home in Sydney, uh, in Sydney's West. And um, they were sort of taken from their families into institutional care. And uh, those are girls um, of sort of mo- in moral danger, uh, <laughs> put that in quotes, moral danger. And um, a lot of abuse happened in this institution over the years. And we gave the women today in the 60s, 70s, um, an opportunity to tell their story, their side of things. Uh, it was just around the time of a royal commission in so institutional child abuse. And um, that was sort of a, a good moment to record their stories, but also not record their stories, but make them part of the process of developing an immersive artwork. Um, the outcome was a 30 minute film Um, shot or produced in 360 degree in a 360 degree theater. We run at UNSW. Um, 
And uh, it was quite a successful project uh, in, in terms of giving the woman an opportunity to tell the story to a wider audience. Um, the project was traveling as a virtual reality installation uh, in film festivals all over the world, really. Um, and uh, yeah, a follow-up project from Paragirls was then working with other museums and institutions on similar projects. For instance, the Utikulenchaku Collective. Uh, this is a group working out of Alice Springs in the APY lands. They invited us uh, to do a project with them, also in a collaborate, collaborative fashion. Um, there was another VR piece we, we finished in 2020 or uh, 2019. Um, so our approach is really uh, community driven and uh, uh, sort of a bottom up approach. Mm. And using very contemporary forms. And is that uh, one of the reasons or one of the kind of conditions that came around when you realised children, young people were needing? Like, what was it, how was it, Megan, that you connected in with the young people of your region as being a really uh, important priority group to work with? When we thought about doing a project in relation to the storms and lived experience storytelling, we knew would be the focus of that because the technology was coming from UNSW and Volker's team, we decided to collaborate closely with our recovery team at Yarra Rangers Council, which was set up in response to COVID and the storm impact. And a lot of the people in that team, a couple in particular, social workers on the ground, working really closely with the community. So it was through those conversations that we determined the audience um, well, the participants, more, more to the point, and who was going to get the most impact from working on an, a potential augmented reality project, but also whose um, voices had not really been heard in the in the recovery process. So our, our recovery team identified that young people, this particular age group from 15 to 25, there was nothing for them in the recovery process. So they were really left, you know, left there kind of going, okay, well, you've got a house half built again or you've got a physical home to live in, in as an interim, but there was no processing of, of what had happened. So we worked with our recovery directorate to recruit the participants for this project and we did, we did a call for participants that was very clear in, in what was being asked. We were seeking people who wanted to be advocates on behalf of um, that age group in the region who wanted to share their stories of what had happened in order to try to help people to understand what had happened and what they wanted people to know about how that experience had changed their relationship to where they live and the place that they live. So we did a public call out and it went through our youth advisory group to council, which a number of participants came through that pathway. And then a few other participants came through particular um, social and support workers that were around the community who were working with people who were ready to tell those stories and who identified that those young people would really benefit from this kind of storytelling project. Yeah, it's interesting you've used a couple of terms there, like people who are ready because it ta everyone comes in at a different opportunity or time to be able to feel that they uh, can be sitting in those places of vulnerability but also 
know, what we're really strongly uh, aware of is that the voice of children, young people in recovery programming or in thinking about recovery strategies is very lacking. So these kind of projects are so vital in order to give them a platform to raise their perspectives and their opinions. One of the reasons that art modality is so effective in working with children and young people is that you can really be really limitless and provide so many different modes of expression. Can you talk about the process of working with the young people on Hard Place, Good Place and how you approach the collaboration to determine what they wanted to share and express through their work and how they could see this as an opportunity for uh, leadership? That's something we thought a lot about and we did quite a lot of preparatory work before we even decided to go ahead with the project. We worked with a psychologist who'd been working in the disaster recovery space to do essentially a psychosocial risk analysis of whether this project was actually going to be beneficial for those young people and and participants who were coming in. And that really helped clarify that direction and how we worked with those young people. The main framing that we got from that was we're centering what the young people want at all times, where to be led by the young people, what they're capable of, what they're comfortable of. No assumptions in that space. Volker, that uh, you used the term co-collaboration before, which is in a way uh, being framed by Megan in terms of an approach. But how, how do you sort of see that happening within your work and particularly within this group of young people that you were working with? Mm. It probably started um, started very clear, making very clear um, statements what is going to be involved in a project. And for instance, you know, we have to go to their place, to their home, to scan the environment or scan uh, objects which are related to the narrative. Um, so first of all, you have to lay out how the project and how the process is uh, evolving and how the process works for them and how much time they have to uh, spend and uh, invest and uh, what the outcome is at the end, right? So after those sort of ground rules are uh, laid out, you can then go to the individual and work closely with them. Uh, we did that over a period of a couple of days in the Yarra Ranges, visiting the participants in their home, um, having an initial conversation at that point. I think there was an in initial conversation at the first place from the psychologist, uh, from the council, I believe, before we came in. So they had sort of a general idea what the project's all about and how it's going to, um, what the outcome is going to be. So over a couple of days, we visited the participants and their families. Um, we talked to them, just an informal discussion or conversation, what they want to tell us, uh, what are sort of the, the features in their place. They would like to be part of the project. And then we started together with the kids to 3D scan um, some of the objects and environments in the home, for instance, one participant, she fell down a set of stairs. She was very scared uh, going down those stairs. They were so slippery at the time outside. And uh, during the storm, they had to take cover and also go down those stairs. So she, she talked about the experience of being scared for her life, really, because trees came down left and right. And 
this set of stairs is sort of the centerpiece of her of her story. So the story revolved around those stairs, and in the gallery, it was uh, represented as a 3D scan of the stairs going down through the floor level of the museum into the basement or into the lower ground level. Um, so we identified those objects and places, 3D scanned them, and then recorded the story. And first, it was also important to involve the kids um, at sort of a bit of a technical level as well that they're interested in. So we gave them an iPad uh, and experiment a little bit with 3D scanning. Um, but at the end of the day, it turned out to be more efficient if we do the final scan ourselves uh, with them present, just to have this quality scan. But uh, it was an opportunity for the kids to try out the technology and play with it, which was, I think, an important uh, part. So kind of a little bit of skill transfer at the same time. Hmm. So important in these projects, isn't it? So, Megan, as a museum initiating the work, you have a duty of care for the young people who you're working with. So um, how did you approach the care element of this project? I started to talk about that a little before, but was there any additional support brought in to manage that side of things, given that it was still within a very early history of the storm impact? Yes, yeah, so one of the pieces of advice out of the psychosocial risk analysis that we did was around the framing, but also that we find a, initially we were looking for a narrative therapist, but eventually we ended up with a psychologist who had a background as a journalist, which is awfully handy, (laughs) to work one-on-one with each young person, initially to discuss the project and to help them to think through whether that's something that they were going to be okay with doing and then also to talk through what their story might be and and get it to a point of being able to articulate a narrative that they might be comfortable sharing and to identify the object or place that they would then then work with Volker and his team to scan. So a lot of work went into creating that, that duty of care for the participants. Mainly it was around having access to professional support even when they needed that support. And as an interesting reflection, less people engaged with that support than we, than we thought, but the, the ability to have it there and, and to be able to offer continuously uh, offer that support as part of the project was really critical to making sure people were held and supported. We changed a lot of things along the way. The project was initially going to be anonymous for those young people. And as we worked with those people, it was being led by them. So we're continually asking questions. Do you want your story to be anonymous? Do you want your name to be in the augmented reality? Do you want it to be on the exhibition panel? Some people wanted their first name. Some people wanted their full name. Some people wanted to front the media and talk about it more. And wanted to know what opportunities there were to share their story much more broadly. Well, a great outcome in terms of youth leadership in escalating that into more of a public conversation. I think once going through the process of finding their voice and story, it really shifted into a place of seeing how that could impact other people around them and how many people 
associated with the story and, and could really see themselves as people who could stand up and say, no, this it's important. What happened to me is important. What happened to our community is important and I want to tell you about it. We'll share links to the project and some video work of the show in our show notes so people can get a bit of a sense of the visuals. But for our podcast listeners, could you describe for us what the immersive experience of the finished work was like? See, if I was walking into the gallery, what would I experience and how would I engage with that work? So as you walk up to the gallery, you'd be approached by one of our staff members who would talk you through the use of an iPad, which is how you experience it. You put headphones on, walk into the gallery, which is effectively empty other than some shards of vinyl which show some of the fallen tree environments. On the screen, on the iPad, you can select from two different ways to engage. One is a series of five stories in the space and one is a couple of longer narratives that were evolving stories. Generally, we'd encourage people to start with the five stories in one space and they'd select that on the iPad, walk up to a narrative bubble which they virtually put the iPad into and you would start to hear that young person tell their story as you walk around and can see in the, virtually in the space through the iPad the object that they are talking about. And some of those objects were just had a chainsaw, so she's talking and talking a lot about the sound of chainsaws for weeks after the experience. Damien's was a f- fridge which had his insulin in it and there was, a, there was power out for about three weeks. So his story is about being diabetic and, and not having the ability to, to look after his medications properly. There was an outdoor antenna. There was a fireplace that the family used to keep warm outdoors. There's some of the examples of what's in those five smaller stories as you walk around the space. And the two longer narratives were two much more in-depth stories. So one was Claudia's story that Volker was mentioning earlier with the staircase, and that story evolves over time. And the other story was Willow's, which was of her house, a a tree fell on her house and she was saved because the tree hit the fridge. And you can see in, as the story evolves, you can see and walk around that space. And then it moves into the story of her father, who she had lost prior to the storms. Vulcan, the use of AI is kind of getting more traction, particularly in cultural spaces. What do you think is the value or the power of that as a medium in these kind of spaces or in, in um, you know, obviously they're a storytelling tool, but what do you think is the value of them specifically in um, addressing these kind of very uh, weighted, important stories? Mm. I think probably the process of creating for collaborators, for the kids, but also for an audience, from an audience point of view, is just an engaging experience. Um, something uh, they might not have uh, seen before, uh, an AI experience in a, in a museum. In particular, High Place, Good Place at the Lilydale Museum, it has sort of a, an interesting technical aspect where you just pick up the iPad, you walk into the space and things appear inside the gallery. Um, but it's also 
I think interesting for the audience. It's not a like a virtual reality experience where you're really on your own, but you're in the space, in the gallery with multiple people. And on the iPad, you can see the other visitors, the other members of the audience at the same time as the 3D objects which come in virtual. So you have that sort of interesting and sometimes uncanny moments where people interact with virtual uh, elements in the same space. And that can be quite engaging, I think, and sort of an interesting way of experiencing those stories. So much more sort of sensorial engagement in a mm. complex story. And also sort of dynamic in a way. You move around, you can look at objects from different perspectives and point of view, and you can choose your own adventure if you want, <laughs> at least uh, for the visuals. Mm. So work was shown in the museum uh, in Lilydale from September to November 2022. What was the feedback that you received, Megan, from the community and did you find that the work provided space for others to also engage in a, 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 a sharing or a processing of their own experience? And was that an intent for you? The responses were expectedly mixed. There were some people who weren't able, didn't feel comfortable listening to those stories, who'd been deeply affected themselves. There were some people who listened to one or two and said, I don't want to do the more in-depth stories. I know they're more traumatic, but I really, really appreciate the strength of these young people telling their stories. Some people who weren't from the region had no idea that this storm had happened and the impact that that had had on the community. So that was eye-opening. We do we get an equal mix of local visitors and tourists coming to the museum. So it was really sharing that difficult experience in it, you know, outside of what was a very isolated area because the, the the storm hit about a twenty-kilometer radius, really heavily, and of course in in a huge region, uh, people living half an hour away didn't know about it, let alone people visiting from Melbourne. We did provide visitors the opportunity to give feedback and we, we decided to ask them to give feedback directly to the young people in that opportunity. So we had all these beautiful handwritten shards, we called them, um, where people had written notes to thank and reflect and respond to the young people and the stories that they had shared, which ended up on the outside of the gallery. And some of those were really profound. So there was people coming in who weren't able to articulate what had happened to them but found that these stories had given voice to their own experiences and feelings. But mostly it was a sense of gratitude towards the young people in sharing what had happened. A lot of our council staff were deeply moved by that. A lot of the, uh, most of the staff across council were involved in the recovery effort in some way. So being able to hear those young people's voices, it, it really shifted how the team felt about the impact of their own work on a daily basis. They might be clearing roads or making sure, you know, planning permits get through, but the impact of that on those young people's lives is huge. Mm. Yeah, the interconnection that we 
we can so easily slip over. So a question to you both really, what, what do you think the impact was on the participants, both from the process of engagement and also sitting in those beautiful responses? Do you have a sense of how the process affected them or the, uh, how it kind of fed into them and their community around them? I, th- I think it was quite varied depending on the experience of the young person. Willow, who had one of the longer narratives, had this beautiful quote that she said in an age interview because she did ended up doing interviews in The Age and went on um, Radio National with Virginia Trioli as well to tell part of her story. But she said, I didn't realise how much I needed my story to be heard. That's when I started to accept this had happened. It took away the storm's power. So for her, it was an incredible process of being able to voice that what had, what had happened. And it's led to a number of other things for Willow, such as she won the Council's Australia Day Award for Young Person of the Year. This project was part of that award. And she's also gone on to feel really strongly about engaging in a creative career after the experience as well. And we received similar feedback from some of the others. One of the other participants was thinking about pursuing social work, but through this process really felt much more strongly drawn to that as a career. And there was other participants who found it an enjoyable experience and that was that was great and uh, off they go, you know, off they go to do other things. So, you know, the different depths of engagement, I guess, in the storytelling process. Mm. Well, always the case, isn't it? And Volker, you would have seen that in terms of the level of engagement, particularly where you talked earlier about skill sharing or skill development. And as much as there is a process of telling a story, the kind of framing and understanding the language of the creative arts, but also its capacity to be able to intersect and kind of escalate issues or ideas or things like that. You know, that's a great power of these immersive programs, isn't it? Yeah, and, and also probably to rethink on, on a personal level uh, uh, what, what was actually the impact of the storm, you know, to, to analyse um, what happened to me and uh, why did it happen to me. And um, I think just the, the process of telling the story and developing the story um, over a couple of weeks uh, helped them to process the events, obviously, um, then the technical side of things um, is just another sort of step, another level on, on that processing of what happened to them. And um, yeah, for most of the young people, I think it was also interesting to experience um, how the technology works. And then at a later stage, we sort of kept them involved uh, while we developed the application for the iPad to some degree. But then um, in the opening night, they all came they all joined us for, for, the, for the opening and uh, first time they saw the experience in the gallery and, and uh, we received a lot of good feedback from, from the young people. Um, also informing maybe future projects, how we can approach that even better. Um, but it was interesting observing them while they sort of experience their own story in this three-dimensional sort of uh, environment in the gallery. Yeah, such a different way of mirroring your own presence, isn't it? Mm. 
It strikes me as a kind of project that has enormous potential to continue in other locations or you've kind of got a map or a framework of how you're developing these ideas. What's for you, what is the future of that work and how do you plan to continue it or how do you see it as a, a kind of more meshed community framework for people to engage with? Yeah, the framework is in place and originally we wanted to work with, or we did work as a community also uh, in New South Wales, Western New South Wales, in Warwick, and tried to develop a couple of stories uh, with the community there. Um, in Warwick, there's of a high youth suicide. Uh, uh, it's, it's a big problem out there. And we started to work with a couple of people out there. But it never came to a point where he said, we have now a collection of stories which we can sort of publish or bring into a into a piece, into a sort of um, augmented reality app. We didn't have the context for for those stories yet to to really show them. Uh, but yeah, ranges the, the storm recovery project was great because it just gave us also the context um, to try out um, this form of storytelling. Uh, the first time really for for public exhibition. So for us as a as a research lab, it was a fantastic opportunity to work with with the kids and and the arranged museum and council to um, explore those uh, interactive and spatial narratives. And it led to sort of a format which we can apply to to other to other contexts. I think there was something really special in being able to work on this from a curatorial perspective as well. As a museum, we had not never worked with augmented reality and that form of storytelling before, but we often work with oral histories, for instance. So this process, there was so many crossover skills with curating a lived experience project and curating something that might be more of a memory-based oral history Project, but being able to do that in a in a contemporary way, so that the outcome that we're providing is working with the current issues of our community, was quite an amazing process for the museum team to go through. And one of the things that we learned that I hold on to with this project is the idea of second stage recovery, and the idea of meaning-making and storytelling as that second stage of recovery, which is something that we learned from that early psychosocial risk analysis conversation that we had, was to make sure that we're very clear of the space that we're working in. We're not, we're not looking for people to share their trauma. This is not necessarily a therapeutic project in that way. This is a meaning-making project. So we can help those people who are ready to make meaning and, and, and share their stories with the wider community. And that's been a really important, important distinction that the project held onto and I think is part of its success is that, I, that idea of meaning making as second stage recovery and it's something that we talk about a lot from a curatorial perspective when we're working in this space. That's a lovely way of framing it, uh, Megan, because there's, you know, there's a small fragile line between the idea of a story uh, and a story that's used in a very restrict sense for public public showing. And I think, um, you know, maybe the way that you're framing that really 
ensures that that doesn't occur, that there's a duty of care around not only the story but the audiences and how how that's framed for audiences. I'd really love to hear your thoughts about the role of the institutions like regional galleries in disaster recovery because we're really trying to um, grow the understanding of, of your spaces as being real um, front lines for community recovery programs and processes. And the Yarra Rangers Regional Museum is part of the local council and we're seeing, and especially in regional rural areas, that councils and institutions such as yours are being called on more and more frequently to support their communities through these disasters and other challenges, that they're seeing themselves as... In research at the moment, they're talking about cultural spaces as being places for disaster preparedness and mitigation because it's where people make connections and connections are the greatest strength for a community in a disaster context. I think all of us here, many of the listeners are aware of the value of arts to support communities in this way, but I'm interested to hear from you how you see this role developing and what do you think it's needed in terms of supporting uh, through policy or structures to enable arts institutions to meet this challenge and continue this kind of community engagement work? I think it's something that arts and cultural spaces have always done, whether it's been clearly articulated as the objective is a different thing. They do it in so many different ways. Our, some of our cultural spaces were turned into actual disaster hubs where people could come in and plug their phones in and use the bathrooms and all sorts of things during some of those experiences. But I think we do need more policies and guidelines around how cultural institutions can work in that space. And I personally take a lot of inspiration from the work that's happening in the US and the UK at the moment. There's some really amazing arts health guidelines and structures that can help support not just the communities that we're working within that space, but also the workers themselves. There's there's a whole another level, there's a whole other skill set required that people need to train in in order to work in, particularly in the kind of lived experience space. So I think one thing we can do is to identify that that actually is a separate skill set that we can train and upskill in and become more capable in. From a local government perspective, one of the reasons I think working for a local government institution is fantastic is because we can draw on the other skills and expertise that are across the organisation. As I mentioned before, this project came from a collaboration with our recovery directorate where we had social workers and other people who were working on the ground. Without that kind of direct access to collaborate with people who have that expertise, a project like this just just wouldn't have happened or it wouldn't have happened in the kind of caring and held and impactful way that this one did. So I think that's local government institutions in particular can play a really key role there. But I do also think there's space for, well, there's need for the, the broader uh policy and guidance work that is kind of behind the eight ball a bit in Australia at the moment. But the, the, work, <laughs> the work that your uh, group are doing with creative recovery is, is going a long way to guide that and the expertise that we really need to work in that space. Yeah, thanks, Megan. It's really great to hear that. And I think there is, as you say, so much great work happening. It's just giving it a bit of a, 
a context and such a vital need for those interrelationships that are required to ensure that we are doing no harm in the processes of the development of our work. Is there anything either of you would like to say before we finish up our chat? Important thing that you took away or learnt from the experience? I'd like to add one other thing, which is that one of the really interesting outcomes for us as a museum is that we have decided to acquire these stories into our collection. So one of the added outcomes, I guess, is bringing lived experience storytelling into our active and contemporary collecting program, which is not something we've ever done before. Normally museums focus on collecting oral histories, particularly of people who, uh, you know, we might be at risk of losing, uh, so a drawing on their historical knowledge. But it's been a real shift to capture those stories and to have them as part of the museum's collection to capture a moment in time and a particular event that's happened in our community. And that's something I think we'll do more of in future. We haven't really talked about that yet, but um, to, to reach a sort of a wider audience outside the Little Dale Museum, it would also be possible to publish uh, the experience as an app in the App Store. Uh, I don't think we have talked to uh, the young people yet uh, if that is an option for them, if they are willing to share their story uh, sort of publicly. Um, but I think it would be also interesting to create a collection of stories and publish them to the to the app store for everyone else to experience it outside the museum context. Yeah, it'll be interesting to know how that then shifts the the framing of the work because the museum context was so vitally in terms of how it was set mm. and how it was structured and how it was kind of cared for as you've spoken so clearly about Megan. So Yeah, you need to create that context then within, you know, the app of some sort, uh, having a good introduction. Mm. Mm. As I say, one of the things I learned and took away from this project was just that the participant experiences everything in designing a project like this. I think often we can get caught up in, you know, a desired outcome and doing good through storytelling and lived experience storytelling. But what, I think what one thing we did really well on this project was to centre the participant experience and allow the whole project to be guided by those participants. And it did, as I mentioned earlier, it did that did change. The parameters did change as we were guided by those young people And those young people are part of our community and now have an ongoing relationship with us at the museum and, and council. In fact, this, this last week was the second anniversary of the storms. So we've been in touch and following up and encouraging those young people to partake in further creative recovery projects that have, are happening within the region. So it's really essential when we're doing this work to, to make sure that the, their experiences are everything and that we're building relationships as part of that that are ongoing. And I think that's a really critical component of that duty of care. This isn't a project with a start and an end. It's the building of a relationship which can then flourish from there and hopefully can be a safe place and platform as a, as a cultural space for those young people and their friends and families from here on as well. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, 
Volker, and thank you, Megan, for such great reflections on this wonderful project. And yeah, we, we will look forward to seeing what else comes out from your amazing gallery there, Megan, and your work, uh, Volker. I've been following a little of the work in Warwick as well, so great to see these new ways of engaging and deepening our practice. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders In Conversation, a podcast from the Creative Recovery Network. We'll link to Hard Place, Good Place in the show notes, and you can also find the project in our recently refreshed library of case studies, alongside many others relating to children and young people. It's on our website. You can find us at www.creativerecovery.net.au. That's also where you can find our latest news, resources, and all our past podcasts and transcripts for each episode. If you're interested in hearing more about the role of young people in disaster recovery, the very first episode of our podcast explores Strathewan Primary School's child-led bushfire education program and includes perspective from a range of experts in that field. Head back to Season 1, Episode 1, if you'd like to hear that. This podcast is produced by me and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany Dumac, and the Creative Responders theme is composed by Margie Squire. Thanks for listening.